Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. to start by reading a few different uh, phrases just from the Hot of Him vision packet. Um, as Lisa said, the next five weeks we are diving deep into prayer as a community and I'm so excited about doing this. And what I love is that this is not something new. This has been in our language the last couple of years. This is a vision that the Lord's given for us as a body that we would draw near to the Lord in prayer. And so I want to highlight just some of the phrases. You guys don't have this in front of you, so I'm just going to read this and you can just follow along. And I'm jumping around, so bear with me. I have a dream for the church, which is Christ's body, that she would become the spotless bride with a heart and eyes only for Jesus that Jesus Christ would have first place supremacy and preeminence in everything. I have a dream that the real reason for a corporate existence as a church would be that he would fill all things with himself. That is, his people, we, would be true spiritual Levites whose inheritance is not in this life because Christ himself is our inheritance. I have a dream that we, the people of God, will remember our first love and once again be zealous and deeply jealous in our hearts for the honor of Jesus, where every joint within the body will actually supply something beautiful. I have a dream that the compelling questions that are constantly being asked are, what does God want and how can we best give it to him? I have a dream that our worship will continue to grow deeper and more focused in the person of Jesus Christ, deeply exalting him. I have a dream that we would be a people who actually become the habitation of God, where our pursuit would not be so much uh, to have a visitational revival, but that God would find in our community a resting place where he can permanently and powerfully dwell with us, that we would constantly host his glorious presence and nearness. And lastly, I have a dream that uh, a covenant community would be formed in which every person is bound together as living stones in a holy temple. So I want to encourage you guys, um, we handed these out a, a couple weeks ago, make sure that you go back and read through it. And the things that, that begin to touch and stir in your heart just personally, might be some of those phrases, it could be other phrases, highlight them. Circle them, ask the Lord why he's touching your heart with them, why he's highlighting them to you, and then take it to him in prayer. It's for a reason. There's some phrases that are gonna stand out to us more than others, and so take note of those things and dialogue with the Lord about them. So before we get started, I just wanna open in prayer again. So, Father, I'm asking for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to touch us tonight. Beautiful Lord, make yourself known tonight. Will you speak to our hearts? Would you show us who you've made us to be? A holy people set apart for your pleasure. We love you, Jesus. Would you take the things of your heart and put them inside of us? Meet us tonight. Go beyond what weak words can accomplish. Would you meet us? And would you change us, Lord? Fill us with yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right ignore me. Uh, (laughs) Okay, so what I love about what we're doing in the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about 
uh, how to engage the Lord in prayer. We're going to be talking about ways in which we can interact with him. Just how do you do it? What are the practicals when I'm praying in the car by myself? What does it look like when I gather together with other believers? What is the content of my prayers? Am I praying just things that are uh, at the tip of my mind or at the tip of my heart, the urgency of the moment? How do we actually engage and direct our hearts? So we're gonna be talking about beholding the Lord individually. We're gonna be talking about beholding the Lord together as a corporate people. We're gonna be talking about intercession, intimacy, praying biblical prayers. So I'm really excited. I'm gonna be here for every week and I'm excited to take notes. And so, uh, but tonight we're not gonna talk about how to pray or what the content uh, or way of prayer should be. That's not what we're highlighting tonight. Tonight I'm gonna talk about the why of prayer. Why? And uh, the the name of the message tonight is uh, the priesthood of humanity. And what we're going to discover is that prayer was God's design from the very beginning and that Adam and Eve are best understood biblically as the first priests who were set apart, made by God for the purpose of communing with him, to dwell in his presence, to minister to his heart, that they're actually the first priests. And so um, number four, uh, prayer is not reserved for super saints. Uh, That would be an easy excuse not to pray, right? Like, oh, that's what the really spiritual people do or the ministers do or whatever. When really, we're all called to pray. Not everyone is called to uh, an occupational office of ministry, but we are all called to be priests and to pray and to commune with the Lord. And so uh, praying as priests is what we're all called to do, but living as priests before God is who we're called to be. Say that again, that prayer is what we're called to do, but being a priest is who we're actually called to be. It's actually an identity that God put on all of humanity, and soon as we'll see, it's because he placed that on Adam and Eve. Uh, so the goal of, of tonight is to walk away with a deep, visceral knowing uh, of the holiness of our purpose as human beings, to be holy priests unto God for his glory and for his good pleasure. And so uh, as I was preparing the notes, I felt the Lord giving a, a couple of questions Uh, Just even as I was studying, I felt the Lord say, do you know who you are? Do you know who I've made you to be before me? Do do you know it? I think all of us could pass a written test, right? If we all handed out tests this morning, are you priest? Yes, I am a priest. (laughs) Or true, false, true, I am a priest. I'm called to pray. But do we know it? Do we live with that? Do we identify ourselves in that way in a regular basis before the Lord? And so, number nine, God created Adam and Eve to be the first and archetypical priests in the beginning. This has huge, huge implications for the rest of humanity, right? Um, And then number 11, uh, that we will soon see that the the priestliness uh, was our design in the beginning, and it's also our destiny in the end, because in the end, we will be a kingdom of priests to our God. And so you can turn the page. I like notes. I'm not gonna hit everything in the notes. This is primarily for you to take home and study. Uh, But I do like to lock into my notes the best that I can, but I'll still be jumping around a bit. So gotta bear with me in my quirk like that. So um, number two, God, the eternal love and fellowship of the Trinity. We have to start with God because everything begins with him. And what I love about him is that as he lived in eternity past amongst the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Uh, there was an eternal fellowship, an intimacy. Before creation, God loved 
himself. It says that the Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God and that the Father knows the Son, the Son knows the Father, the Spirit knows the Son, the Spirit knows the Father. There was this holy, intimate fellowship and relationship uh, amongst the Godhead, and that's actually where creation is birthed out of. They had no need. There was nothing that was lacking. They fully uh, enjoyed one another. They were uh, each other's deepest enjoyment, yet from that place they desired. They had a desire in their heart. And so I love this phrase from uh, uh, Mike Bickle uh, as he talks about this pre-creation eternal fellowship. He just says, he calls it the fellowship of the burning heart. And I love that because creation comes from that overflow of his burning heart. Uh, letter B, prayer is simply God's invitation to humanity to be a part of the divine conversation and the eternal fellowship and enjoyment the Trinity has been having with one another for all eternity. That's what prayer is. There was a fellowship that had been happening and now God's calling humanity to participate in that fellowship, in that, that conversation. Um, so we were made for fellowship with God, to give him glory, to move his heart. And so letter D, the very act of creation was from an overflow of desire that the divine fellowship had. We're not birds and we're not rocks. We're the only creatures in God's uh, created order with the faculties and capabilities of relating to God in such direct and intimate ways, uh, the, the, the way that he has made us. And so I love this passage from Matthew 12, 34. Jesus says that, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, or uh, the CSB says, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. That's exactly what creation was, it was an overflow as he spoke things into existence. And so, number three, Eden, uh, Earth's first temple. Now, buckle up, y'all. This is, this is exciting, but if you've not heard this before, it'll kind of send your brain on tilt a little bit. And so God not only created human beings in his own image and likeness, but he also placed Adam and Eve in a context that's quite like his own. Uh, Eden as a reflection of heaven, or the term is paradise, which the term paradise uh, is actually can be translated as garden. And so it's, uh, it's it could be thought of as that the Garden of Eden was also made in the image of God's heavenly temple. Uh, if you search through, I, I couldn't put this in the notes, it was just too exhaustive. There's so much scriptures that describe that God's dwelling place has trees, has rivers, has landscape, has walls, has pathways. It's, it's physical. Like, it's not immaterial, it's not ethereal. God dwells in the heights of the heavens, and where he lives is a beautiful city. I like to call it a diamond city. And his throne room, it's in his heavenly temple. And so too, as we're about to see, as he created Eden in the beginning, it also bears an image of what it is like in heaven for him. And so, uh, let's see. Letter B, the Bible later describes that all the various forms of tabernacles and temples find their origin and inspiration from God's dwelling in the heavens and its mirrored reality found in Eden, as well as, again, in the restored heavens and earth. Um, Genesis 2, you can turn the page. Genesis 2, 8 through 15. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made it to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden, and the tree of knowledge uh, of good and evil. 
A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, which was on the east side of the Eden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to serve and to keep or to guard it. Uh, Dr. Walton, uh, um, uh, I came across this quote. I thought it really just hit it right on the head. We must first recognize that the Garden of Eden was not, strictly speaking, a garden for man, but uh, it was a garden for God. Ezekiel 28 actually says the Garden of God, Eden. Uh, the Garden of Eden is not viewed as, uh, by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mesopotamian farmland, but as an archetypical sanctuary. That is, a place where God dwells where man should worship him. Many of the features of the garden may also be found later in later sanctuaries, particularly the tabernacle or Jerusalem temple. These parallels suggest that the garden itself is understood as a sort of sanctuary. And here we've got this diagram right here where they're comparing the temple with the way that Eden is structured. And so a lot of people think that, that the Garden of Eden, that that's all that it was, and uh, that Eden itself was only a garden. But the Bible speaks of Eden as a region. He planted a garden within the region of, of Eden. And it's actually not the center, it's actually over on the east side, he says. And so this is the, the threefold structure of Eden itself where you have the mountain of God, you actually have the Garden of Eden to the east of it, and then uh, to the farther side you have the region of Eden. And so many scholars, letter E, have listed the very similarities between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle and or Jerusalem temple. So number one, God walked in both. So again, we're, right now we're contrasting, we're comparing the garden with the temple, okay? God walked in both, representing his unique presence in each. God doesn't just waltz around. When God on the earth is walking in the midst of a people has huge significance. And so too, as he would walk with Israel to identify that they're a select set apart people separate from the nations, that they're in covenant with him, so too he walked with Adam in the garden. Something very specific and unique. Number two, human beings are commanded to work or serve and to keep and guard it, to guard them both, representing their priestly role and function. This is super cool, guys. Letter A, in the rest of the Old Testament, whenever the two words are used within a 15-word range, it always is in reference to Levites and priests. So any, any common Hebrew reading Jew, as they're reading Genesis, as they know the Pentateuch or the, the rest of the five books of the law, they read that about Adam and Eve and they go, oh, priest. That, that's priestly language. That's not said of anyone else. Like to serve and to keep or to, uh, to work and to guard the temple, they're going, that, that's literally temple priestly language. It's always in reference to the priests and the Levites. And so for us, we're so far removed, and our Bible translations don't necessarily cause it to be as, as prevalent or, or apparent. But again, any uh, Jewish person reading this in the Hebrew would go, oh yeah, all the other time I see that language, it's only in reference to priests. So turn the page. This is also confirmed by the cherubim, actually, because as Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, uh, uh, the cherubim are set at the entrance point of the garden and they're told to do the same thing, to guard. It's the same word, to actually guard and keep watch over uh, the garden. Uh, number three, the structure of both the garden and the temple is threefold with an entrance facing the east. Both are situated on a mountain and both are guarded by cherubim. 
Rivers flow out of both Eden and the eschatological temple in Jerusalem. Eschatological is a big fancy word to just mean the end of the age or the age to come. That, that's all that it means. If I only have a couple big words, but when I can use them, I like to use them. So, uh, so <laughs> and then number seven, uh, precious metals and stones are used to adorn both. Um, there's great similarities between the trees that fill the garden and the Edenic inspired decorations that adorn the temple. When you walk into the temple, on the walls, on the ceiling, it's trees. It's pictures of trees. It's actually trying to paint the picture of the glory that was lost but was present in the beginning. It's actually meant to throw them back to in the beginning, God dwelt in a garden with mankind. And so as they're in the temple and they're bringing sacrifices, they're remembering why they have to do sacrifices because they got expelled from the garden. <laughs> but our first priestly role started there, but it's also meant to point people to the future because they have the covenantal promises that God's going to restore heaven and earth. It's not always gonna be that way. We're gonna be back in Eden again. There's gonna be no more sin and no more suffering and no more death and no more injustice. So as they're in the temple priesting to the Lord, priesting is a word I made up, just ministering to the Lord, they're actually uh, uh, cognizant of what it was in the beginning and what it's gonna be in the end. And so they're doing these sacrifices in light of those things. Um, uh, let's see, and then um, number nine, moreover, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge seem to uh, be represented and symbolized respectively in the sanctuary lampstand and law. Meaning this, the, the lampstand uh, uh, is meant to represent the tree of life and the law is meant to represent the answer uh, or the response in light of Adam and Eve uh, taking from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because of their disobedience and laying hold of knowledge, God goes, now I have to implement a law. I had one law, don't eat from that tree. But now because you laid hold of that, I actually have to give you the Torah, I have to give you the law for that. And so letter G, uh, the perspective that the garden is the first sanctuary makes far more sense when we realize that gardens in the ancient uh, Near East were very different than how we understand them today. When, when we think of gardens now, how many guys have a garden? How many guys have ever gardened? Six by eight, little plot. We got a couple rows of, you know, onions and lettuce and potatoes or something like that, carrots. And pretty fledging. I, I've, I've gardened a little bit uh, when I was in college and it was pitiful. It was really bad. <laughs> and so oftentimes, first, we hardly probably ever think about Adam. He's just not in our day-to-day -day thinking. But then even when we do, uh, oftentimes the flannel graph imagery that we get <laughs> from Sunday school is that uh, Adam was just the first uh, beet farmer. He was just the first potato farmer. Like he just had this little plot, little garden, and that he was made to work the soil. That was his purpose, just to be earth's first farmer and that's where god was going to meet with him and so gardens in the ancient world were far different okay uh, uh we can go ahead uh let's see yeah think of uh, uh letter h gardens in the ancient world were associated with royalty this is very different than my little garden behind my house okay they're associated with royalty. They were adjacent to king's palaces. They were walled and landscaped with pathways and regions. In other words, it had structures and dimension to it. Are we getting a little bit better picture of this is not only just a tiny little plot of ground? Uh, uh, letter I, while we would normally imagine the Garden of Eden as a place of remarkable fruitfulness and beauty, and it is, 
We should also picture it as including structural features such as walls, paths, gates, and chambers. So um, again, uh, as, as we're talking about the garden, this is something related specifically with royalty and, and a kingdom, right? Um, letter K. Next, we need to understand the designation of the term garden. The word generally refers to a park-like setting featuring trees and what could be called landscaping, okay? Uh, this is in contrast to the American usage of garden, which more often than not refers to a small rectangular plot of ground with, uh, which, uh, with rows of vegetables or flowers in the same way that a garden of the palace would be adjoined to uh, to the palace, Eden would then be the source of the waters and the residence of God, and the garden would adjoin God's residence. Gardens of this variety were a common feature in palace complexes in the ancient world. So let's move to the, the quote from letter L. I love this. This is from G.K. Beale. He says, Ezekiel 28 is probably the most explicit place anywhere in canonical, 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 can canonical canonical I knew that actually <laughs> canonical literature where the Garden of Eden is called a sanctuary so we just got done looking at a lot of similarities and what he's drawing down on right now is he's going yeah like Ezekiel 28 it's not drawing similarities it actually just straight up calls it a sanctuary he goes, we're not left, however, with a collection of similarities that show how comparable Eden is to a temple, which there's plenty there for that. Indeed, Ezekiel 28 explicitly calls Eden the first sanctuary, which substantiates that Eden is described as a temple because it is the first temple, albeit a garden temple. It's beautiful. Uh, so I put the passage uh, down there Here's the, probably the most uh, uh, controversial thing I'm going to say tonight. <laughs> and, and it really shouldn't be controversial because uh, the, the point is, is much bigger than this. Ezekiel 28 has an interesting history for scholars. Here's why. There's a debate on whether it's describing Lucifer as the priest in Eden or Adam. And the longer history, historically, is that it's interpreted as Adam. It's been more closer to recent history that it's been understood as Lucifer. The point, uh, whether it's Lucifer, Adam, or a guy named Pete, that's not the point. That's not what I want you to see. This passage says within Eden, there's the mountain of God, the garden of God, a holy priest that was actually operating in purity before the Lord in Eden, in a sanctuary. It literally says all of those things. So whether it's Pete or Adam or, or Lucifer, that's not the point. In the beginning, explicitly, there's a sanctuary that God placed Adam in to serve and to minister, and it's called the Eden of, uh, the Eden of God or Garden of God and the Mountain of God. They're all present there in the beginning. So that's the, that's the bigger point. So don't get tripped up if it's this or that. That's really not the point. So uh, let's move on to, uh, let's see. Yeah, I'll actually read uh, letter O again. Just, just, I want to be clear on that. I don't want anyone to get tripped up by that. Regardless of if Ezekiel 28 depicts Adam or Lucifer as the first priest, you have a biblical text that describes the beginning as having the holy mountain of God that is present along with the garden of God called Eden with a specific priest who is adorned with the same priestly stones that later priests wore in service to the Lord. 
He was residing in Eden and that this priesthood started off as holy and became corrupt and profaned the sanctuary. That's the main point. And so uh, moving on to uh, Roman numeral four, priestly design, humanity's original purpose. Genesis 2:15. then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. As we said already, to tend and to keep or to uh, work and to guard. Again, those two words are only used in reference to priests. This would be the only exception. And so it's such a rare thing that people who understand that about priestly language, they would say, of course, priestly. And so number one, as we've seen, Adam is best understood as the first and archetypical priest since he is placed into a garden sanctuary environment and commissioned with the same language that later is used only for priestly services and duties. Adam was called to serve the Lord and to guard over his earthly sanctuary because God desired a place to dwell among his people and his creation. So what are the implications of this like okay that's neat <laughs> all right now what does that mean then how does that break down to us then it would be very difficult to exaggerate the significance of this understanding as it relates to understanding the purpose of humanity the original and archetypical man was fashioned first and foremost to minister to the lord adam and his progeny or his offspring his kids they were created to be a priestly people who magnified the greatness of yahweh in short we exist for him we exist for him when he formed adam from the dust he put him in eden in this sanctuary he put him in this place to minister to him to draw near to him, to spend time with him, to be close to his heart, to have that fellowship and to know him. When we're talking about priesting or being a priest, we're talking about being with God and ministering to him, is speaking to him, hearing him speak to us. It's walking in the cool of the day with God. It's that they would actually magnify the Lord in relationship with him. And so letter B on top of page seven, In the most primal fundamental sense, humanity was created to identify and live as priests. And from that very overt purpose, identity and action then move outward. Get this, from the biblical standpoint, the priestly activities are the assumed starting point for humanity. And the other tasks given are to be seen as the secondary elements or purposes of our existence, okay? Letter C, in our day, this is nearly the exact opposite, okay? So again, we're, we're talking about that because the very first thing he's put to do is to be put into Eden, to priest unto the Lord, to minister to him, and then everything else is to be an overflow from that, okay? We are in a very different situation in how we view what's of most importance and, and the very purpose of our lives, right? Letter C, in our day, this is nearly the exact opposite of how this reality is approached of all of the billions of things that people choose to be their starting points of purpose and what is of most importance, we have a difficult challenge convincing people why they should shut down thing, uh, these things for a moment in order to engage in priestly activities of worship and prayer that they were actually designed chiefly for by God in the beginning. Do you see that? 
It, that, that's the starting point is him. We're made for him. He's the starting point. Everything else is secondary. And we have so many things vying for our attention and pulling on our heartstrings and things, the tyranny of the urgent and things that we got to take care of and run to and all this. And the Lord's going, come to me. Draw near to me. I'm everything that you need. There's not a need that you have that I'm not the answer for. Draw near to me. But guess what? It goes deeper than him answering our needs because you had a priesthood in the beginning that had no needs. There's no need to change the spiritual atmosphere. No revival was needed. No healing was needed. What does the priesthood look like if there's no, no sin to atone for, no sacrifice needed? That's what it was in the beginning. We we're priests to the Lord. We we're made for him. What's it going to be like in the end? Jesus comes back. He condemns the wicked. He rewards the righteous. There's the resurrection of the dead, the judgment seat of Christ. He restores heaven and earth. And we're a kingdom of priests forever. So what does priesting look like when there's none of those things needed? Right now, the priesthood in this age looks, looks a certain way because we do have injustice and we have sin and fallenness and we need reconciliation and we need forgiveness and we need sacrifice, right? But what does a kingdom of priests look like in Eden? What does it look like in perfection? We're not praying for our circumstances to get any better. It's not going to get any better. It's glorious. <laughs> what does priesting to God look like? And the bookends of the beginning and the end it really needs to inform our purpose. If you want to know what God's about, look at what he's going to do forever. That says a lot. If you want to know what God's about, look at what he's going to do temporarily and look at what he's going to do forever. I think we need more understanding of the priestly nature that we were designed for as image bearers or imagers, that we're actually designed to be priests. Um... Where am I? Yeah, so uh, uh, Roman numeral five, all of a sudden Roman numeral V. <laughs> uh, let's see, actually, actually, we're gonna skip all that. I just wanna be, be mindful of time. Um, let's go to uh, Roman, numeral, uh, Roman numeral six on page eight. Uh, not only were we designed to be priests in the beginning, but we also were destined to be a restored kingdom of priests in the end. Uh, Matthew 19, 28, right below that, Jesus said, truly I tell you, uh, uh, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, uh, I, I, I didn't put this in here, but uh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, wild at heart guy. What's his name? John Eldridge. He's got this beautiful quote in his book, All Things New. And, uh, and he says, Jesus did not say, I'm going to make all new things. He said, I'm going to make all things new. He didn't say, I'm going to make all new things. Like, hey, well, this fell apart and I'm just going to like throw it away and I'm going to just recreate, I'm just going to start all over. He goes, no, he's actually faithful to his creation. He's not going to make all new things. He's going to make all things from their broken state renewed. He's going to make them new, which is lovely because what does that say about our bodies? What, what does that say about our world? He did a good thing when he made the earth and when he made mankind. 
He did a good job. And he doesn't need a new one. He's going to restore and redeem this one. It's this body that's going to get out of the ground someday. It's this one. There's a lot to that. Um, okay, uh, Acts 3.21. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things. Okay. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Uh, the second death has no power over him, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. What I didn't highlight, because there's so much to this, is in that very verse, you've got priests and reigning. Why? Because we're kingdoms of kings and priests. And Adam was called to be a king and to rule over creation as well, too. So you have that mirrored as well, too, but we're focusing only on the priesthood tonight. Um, uh, Revelation 21.3, uh, then, uh, then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling, it's the word tabernacle, is with humanity. So if God's bringing a tabernacle and we're all joining him, who's in a tabernacle? Priests. Uh, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. This dual kingly and priestly function is the broad theme of the book of Revelation from beginning uh, to end. Why is this? Here it is. Because our calling and positioning as kings and priests to God in the end is simply a restoration of what our original calling and purpose was in the beginning. He is restoring what it was in the beginning. If we're priests in the end, it's also that we were priests in the beginning by his design. Again, this speaks volumes about who we are to him. Again, that question I started with, do we really know? Do we really know who we are? Do we really know how God sees us? Uh, letter C, it's important to, oh, I already hit on this, just talking about uh, letters uh, C and D. I, it's what I was saying that the bookends have perfection, priesthood in a perfection. And so we need to think about that a little bit more, and I think there's a lot more to be drawn from that, so, but I already hit on that. Uh, letter uh, E, I love this quote from a guy named Stephen Venable. It says, in the age to come, when the long-awaited reign of righteousness has finally drawn, uh, dawned upon the earth and all injustice has been eradicated, he will still be worthy of unrelenting worship. Our worship must be mingled with fervent intercession for the church and the lost now in this age, but at the center of night and day devotion as priests stands a breathtaking beauty that knows no rivals, and his splendor alone is more than sufficient to warrant 24-7 devotion in heaven and on earth forever. Uh, next page. Paul's priestliness. Okay, raise your hand. How many, have you heard a sermon on Paul the priest? Just go ahead. Everyone, just tons of hands, right? No. Okay. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> the priestliness of Paul? Here we go. Romans 15, verse 15 and 16. Guys, I swear, I almost like bugged out and fell out of my chair when I read this. This so <laughs> caught me off guard. I was not expecting this because this is not how I view Paul, but it is now how I view, now how I view Paul. Nevertheless, I have written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
Guys, that's, that's crazy. Like, when I think of Paul, I think about like his missionary exploits. I think about the signs and wonders, the beatings that he endured. I think about him being a light to the Gentiles. He's saving the lost. He's birthing New Testament churches. He's writing scriptures. His handkerchief is healing people. He's turning cities upside down. And Paul goes, oh, I'm just doing priestly service. Wait a second. <laughs> priestly service? He goes, yeah, in light of the gospel, if you're curious what priestly service looks like, just look at me. I'm doing it. Wait, what? I thought, I thought priesting was like, okay, I just sit and pray. That's all I do. It's actually not true. Being a priest before God is more than praying and worshiping. It actually has all of the components, we're about to get into this, of worship and discipleship and evangelism. It has components of ministry to the Lord, ministry to God's people, and ministry to the lost. There is no priesthood that only does this and never engages the body and never engages the lost. That doesn't exist. And so letter B, he describes himself as a minister of Christ Jesus to the lost or those outside of covenant with God, serving as a priest in light of the gospel that the lost may become his priestly offering to the Lord, okay? So Romans 12 goes uh, that we're to offer our lives as living sacrifices to the Lord, right? And that's glorious, but Paul grabbed onto a truth that goes, there's something more important than just me presenting meat to God. It's actually me presenting the people that you've put in my life that I have been entrusted with, my family, my neighbor, my coworkers. Uh, you've actually entrusted people to me, and we all, all have a different entrustment. It could be 10 people, two people, or 1,000 people. It doesn't matter. Paul goes, they're the offering. I'm, I'm operating as a priest, and the sacrifice and the offering I'm giving to the Lord, I'm saving the lost, and I'm actually presenting them to the Lord. It's stunning. It's stunning. I never would have thought him to be a priest. That, that's the last word I would think of. And he just blatantly goes, I'm doing priestly service in light of the gospel, which means this, letter C, in light of the gospel, there's a priestly responsibility that requires priestly activities. I'll say that again. In light of the gospel, circle this, underline it, whatever you need to do. In light of the gospel, there's a priestly responsibility that requires priestly activities. And what Paul is saying is that he's actually doing them. Um, and so his strategy is to first be a priest to the Lord, to then connect other people to the Lord in the place of prayer. In other words, he's actually bringing them into priestliness themselves to come to God. And then also too, that he then is a faithful proclaimer of the gospel to introduce them to Jesus, to bring them into their priesthood, to bring them to the Lord. Do you see that? It has all three components, all three aspects. And so letter F, a priesthood that only prays is completely foreign uh, to the Bible in both Old and New Testament. There is no such thing as a priest, uh, as being a priest and not having a dynamic and expressive ministry in the body of Christ with a clear and anointed witness to the lost. Uh, this is a really great example uh, from Malachi, the passage right beneath it. Malachi 2, 5 to 7. I love this. God speaking, he says, my covenant was with him, Levi. Uh, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. 
True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me. Hello, garden. He walked with me in peace and integrity, and he turned many from iniquity. Wait a second, I thought he was a priest. Yup. That's exactly it. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge or the knowledge of God. And people should desire instruction from his mouth. Why? Because he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Let me ask you. A lot of preachers going around, you know, like, God's raising up end time messengers. Yes, amen. Who are messengers? Priests. We're all called to priests at his feet. We're all called to stand before him and guess what? He wants us to be his mouthpiece then. He wants to fill us with the knowledge of himself that as we go forth and we minister within the body, we're giving them him. Yeah. And that when we go and we're around the lost, we're giving them him. But we can't give them him if we don't start with him. It, it, it's, it's not that complicated. It's, it's, it, we make it complicated because we're very busy. And we're being told that a lot of other things are needed, but there's one thing that's needed. And so we start there, and then we take what we get there, and we uh, minister it to his body and to the lost. And so then um, a letter G on the next page, from this passage, uh, from Malachi, from this passage we see that we as priests are all called to revere the Lord, to stand in awe of him, to walk with God in peace and integrity, to be full of his word, able to instruct others, and to turn people away from sin as God's messengers. That very passage, it, it highlights these things. Put your hand on your heart. Say, I am a priest, and I am to be these things. I'm to carry these things. I'm to revere the Lord. I'm to stand in awe of him. I'm to walk with God. To be full of his word. Able to instruct others. And turn people away from sin. Because I'm his messenger. That's a priest. That's what a priest does. So we are to be full of the knowledge of God because we're to live as priests before him. And then we're also to be full of the knowledge of God because as priests, we are to be God's messengers. We're to be his mouthpiece to his body and to the lost. So uh, Roman numeral eight, our call as priests in this age. Oop, okay. I love this passage from 1 Peter 2, 7 and 9. So it's actually 6, 7, 9. Therefore, to you who believe, he's precious, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Ready? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's so much to that passage. <laughs> there's, there's so much to that alone. You could do a sermon just on, on that alone. But we're a royal priesthood, speaking of that kingliness as well too. We're a royal priesthood, a chosen people for his own possession. Why? So that we can make known the excellencies of Christ. It starts with him. 
as a priesthood that we then overflow and we make known who he is to other people, right? And then also too, that we would bring people out of darkness and into light just as the same way that he's done with us. Why does he pull us out of darkness? Why does he seek to save the lost? To restore them to their original purpose, to be with him, to be priest unto God, to be with him, to draw near, to see him, to savor him, to love him, to give him glory, to magnify him, to know him intimately. That's why he saved us. He saved us for himself. He desires us. He didn't just save us to get us out of hell. So thankful. <laughs> We're not going to hell. Thank God. <laughs> but he made us for so much more. He made us for himself. He wants time with us. He wants conversation with us. He wants communion. We're made to fellowship with him. Again, birds can't do that. Trees and rocks can't do that. Fish can't do that. We're the only creatures in his creation that's able to communicate and fellowship, to feel what he feels. He wants to make himself known to us in that way. So uh, Roman numeral eight, uh, we just read the passage. Our calling as priests in this age can be understood in three really broad categories. I already said it, worship, discipleship, and evangelism. Our relationship to God, our relationship to people, uh, to, to God's people, and then our relationship to the lost. But all three aspects are in the priesthood. Again, we are all priests. Israel as a nation was a nation of priests. Sure, there were Levites that they had a full-time Levitical uh, ministry. Their nine to five was in the temple. Cool, got it. But Israel as a nation was a nation of priests. That, that means like, I'm a priest at my job. I'm a priest at my home. I'm a priest everywhere that I go. And I'm fellowshipping with God everywhere that I go. I take him with me. He's walking, he's in me, he's dwelling with me. I have continual fellowship with him. And guess what? I begin to connect with other people in the body of Christ. And guess what? We're two or more gathered. He's there in our midst right there, right? And we're fellowshipping around who God is. And then the lost uh, comes along and we begin to share him with them as well too. All three components are always present within a priestly calling, which we all have. And so uh, letter B, Oh, I love this quote from John Piper. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. Worship is therefore the fuel and goal of missions. Do you catch that? The purpose of it, the driving force that we, would, like Paul, would bring others to the knowledge of God. And that the bride is, again, it's not only saving the lost to get them out of hell. Paul, all of his other language in the New Testament epistles is he's saying that I would present you as a chaste virgin, that I would present you holy and blameless before him, that you wouldn't have spot or wrinkle or blemish, that you would be sincere in your love. You would be fully mature and complete, lacking in nothing on that day. He's looking to present a bride in her full glory not just a get out of hell free card or anything like that. Like he had more vision uh, uh, beyond just catching fish. He wanted to clean them up, prepare them and serve them. That's kind of a funny imagery. Like <laughs> for the Lord to consume, I don't know. And so um, letter C, it must be stressed clearly that only praying is not true priesting. I know I've already said that. I just really want to make that clear. As we're talking about priesting or being priests, we're talking about ministering to the Lord. It must be stressed clearly that 
only praying is not true priesting. The Bible has no example of this anywhere. However, letter D, there is no biblical example of discipleship and evangelism that is initiated apart from worship and prayer being at the starting point. Uh, letter E, so what does this look like in a more practical way? And uh, so some more details for what this actually looks like. Um, and then, yeah, we'll, we'll, I'm, I'm wrapping up right here. And so number one, it's to be with him, to behold him, to minister to him. Just stay right there a second, to be with him. What does it look like to be a priest? It means to be with him. Speaking of being close and near, drawing near to him, his proximity. We were made to be close. We we're made to be near his heart. To behold him. To behold him is to see. To be near, but to see. To see him for who he is. To minister to him. I just put down to speak to talk to him, to open up your heart, open up your mouth, talk to him, minister to him, thank him, delight yourself in him, take pleasure in him. Uh, we're to minister to the Lord individually, private, at home, in secret, where no one's around. We see Jesus do that often. He would often withdraw to pray with the Father. Uh, but number five, we're called to minister to the Lord corporately as well too. This is really important, guys. Like, it's very important that we learn to pray in secret, but it's very important that we learn to pray with one another. God manifests himself differently when his people gather together, um, when there's a unity together in prayer that you just can't get by yourself. It's, not, it's just not there, it's not available. And so we have to be able to pray on our own, but we have to be able to pray together corporately and so, uh, as a holy people and as a nation for his own possession. And number six, being a priest also means that we're to be ministers of his covenant. So what the priests were doing, they were being ministers of the covenant to uphold it, to uh, equip the body in it that, that they would understand and know and grow in the covenant that, that they're in relationship with, and that they would bring the lost into it as well too. Being ministers of the covenant is making God known to both God's people and to the lost. Uh, letter A, one of the ways that we're ministers of his covenant is through intercession. And I'm just gonna say that's conversation with God. And then B, ministers of a covenant through proclamation, that's conversation with people. So intercession, God's bringing us into a conversation with himself. Uh, but then uh, letter B, as being a minister of, of his covenant, it's actually conversation with people. And that's both God's people and the lost. It's making it known to man. Uh, his covenant or who he is, what he is desiring. Um, and then just to break it down even a little bit further of what does this mean or look like then? What's the conversation uh, uh, messaging as we talk to believers and unbelievers? It's the same thing, just to two different groups. We say the same thing to God's people as we do the lost. We make his heart known, who he is. We make his words known. What has God said? This is what he has declared. This is what he has spoken. This is what he has warned. This is what he has instructed. So we tell others of his heart. We tell others of his words. We tell about his ways. And then lastly, we tell of his deeds, the things that he has done, is doing, and is going to do. 
This is what we tell Christians, and this is what we tell non-Christians. We talk about his heart to believers and to non-believers. We talk about God's ways to believers and to non-believers. We make his ways known. We talk about his deeds. That's called being a, a, a faithful witness, testifying, just like Paul did, right? And so then, um, and then uh, number seven, as a priest were to offer the lost as an offering to the Lord. And a lost might be a little bit too narrow, but it, it's fine. To offer the lost, because that's, that's uh, I'm referencing that Romans 15 passage. And then number eight, to offer the Lord his people as a pure spotless bride, fully mature and complete in their love and obedience uh, to his leadership. So what I did was for the remainder page and a half is just scriptures talking to us about prayer. I want to read these out and then we're gonna close. Let the scriptures wash over your heart in what it says to us as priests is God's desire for prayer. This, this is not man's opinion. This is just simply how God talks about prayer to us. So we have both examples and uh, instructions for prayer. So here we go. Matthew 14, after dismissing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain by himself to pray well into the night, and he was there alone. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. While he was praying in private, and his, his disciples uh, were with him, he asked them, who do you say, or who do the crowds say that I am? Luke 22, he went out and made his way as usual. I love this. As usual, this is what he always does. To the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when they reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them uh, about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray. Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Are you devoted to these things? The apostles' teachings is, is the scriptures. Are you devoted to the word? Are you devoted to the fellowship? Are you devoted to breaking bread? And are you devoted to prayer? Acts 13, as they were worshiping and ministering to the Lord, that's also how it could be translated, ministering to the Lord, the Lord in fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Uh, we, give, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. For this reason also since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. First Thessalonians 1, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. First Thessalonians 3, for what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all of the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. Uh, Colossians 4, Epaphras, uh, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in prayers. Do you know you can labor in prayer? So that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. He's praying and producing things inside of people. His fellowshipping with God in prayer is producing stuff in others. It's powerful. 
uh, Acts 12, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Colossians 4, devote yourself to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Uh, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us for the word. Romans 12, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. I just wanna say this over us, heart of the Father. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Luke 21, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and the worries of life. Or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all of these things uh, that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. First Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is God's will for you. It's God's will. And lastly, Ephesians 6, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. So this is what we were designed for and created for by God. It was our uh, design in the beginning. It's our destiny in the end. We're priests. We're gonna learn how to, we're gonna learn, we're all gonna grow and all these things, but we have to first start like, I am a priest. You made me for you to be a priest, to draw near to you, to minister to your heart, to minister who you are to God's people and to minister who you are to the lost. It's being a priest, and that's who we all are. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.